We are starting a series uh, today on the Apostles' Creed, and the series is going to take a passage each week that illuminates a phrase from the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is the creed, the confession of faith that we have already together said as a congregation, and we've said it many, many Sundays over the last 10 years, right? And we, in all that we do in our service, we want to be really thoughtful about what we do and why we do it. And so uh, part of the reason for doing this sermon series is to, to give us more engagement with this confession of faith that we use on a regular basis. And this is a very historic creed. Probably the, the first versions of it started in the second century, uh, maybe finally formed together in the fifth century, and was likely used as a, maybe even as a membership into the church. So it might have been something like a statement of, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and then a person would say, I believe. And, and so it recognizes, uh, with this language of I, this personal confession. Uh, and I do think that's important to note as we'll go through it over uh, the next number of weeks. We'll, we'll talk about the fact that it doesn't say we believe. Uh, the Nicene Creed, which we have used in the past, does. Uh, and yet there is a reality. We, we could say that as well. It's not our particular membership vows. It's something that we're saying that we believe as individuals and something we confess together as a church because we're saying that we believe it with one another in the room and with those around the world and throughout history that have used this same centuries-old confession. Now, some of the things that we want to talk about is why we use this, why we even have a creed, why it is that we confess it together. I feel like growing up in the church that I grew up in, we did use uh, this same creed. And, and there was a bit of a conversation for a while about uh, culturally the idea that a creed was uh, just ritualistic and something that, that people were putting boundaries around what they were to believe. It was for simple-minded people that couldn't think for themselves, right? So you, you come into a room where everybody's saying the same thing together and it's, well, they, they don't have the power to think for themselves, right? The idea of creeds was was dismissed for a while there. And in response, in the middle of that time, I'm gonna read uh, a creed from a guy he kind of wrote in jest, a guy named Stephen Turner, Steve Turner. He was a British music, is a British music journalist, wrote books about U2 and the Beatles and Johnny Cash, and um, so well-known uh, music journalist writes this, and it was called, he called it Creed, this poem, he says, uh, we believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. Uh, he writes that as one word. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone, to the best of your definition of hurt, and to the best of your knowledge. We believe everything's getting better, despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated. You can prove anything with evidence. We believe that all religions are basically the same. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society, and society is the fault of conditions, and conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. We believe there is no absolute truth, except that the truth that there's no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. This was a little bit the idea that I grew up with, uh, with creeds being this thing that was to be pushed aside because it, it wasn't, 
it wasn't thoughtful enough as, as individuals. And there's some thread of that that continues. And at the same time, there's actually now an embracing of creeds. And you may not think of it in, with that language or with those terms, but I, I could have on the way here this morning, I, I walked to church most Sundays and I, I could have easily found a yard sign that is a creed, right? Uh, we, the ones that we see around uh, our neighborhood most often are the ones that say, we believe black lives matter, no human is illegal, love is love, women's rights are human rights, science is real, water is life, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, kindness is everything. Those are very common, less common in our neighborhood, but you may have seen in response to that, we believe to salute the flag, to stand for freedom, police protect us in borders, in the second amendment, all lives matter, science is not political, to be informed, not influenced, unborn lives matter, God is real. These are common ways of expressing things that we believe, and these are essentially creeds that that whoever is confessing them, whoever's putting them in their yard or believing them, just believes. And, and sometimes they've, they've thought about why it is that they believe what they believe, but often these things become just things that become accepted in a particular culture. And we could dive into either one of those, and we're not, uh, and, and talk about the things that are helpful and the things that aren't helpful in either one of those, right? Uh, the, all of the assumptions that come with uh, each of those statements, right? But the reality is they are based on beliefs. And uh, there is a recognition as we gather on Sunday mornings as followers of Jesus that we all have fundamental things that we believe. And sometimes we think about it. And sometimes we think about why it is that we believe these particular things. And my hope is that as we gather and we confess the Apostles' Creed, that we are both thinking about what it is that we're confessing we believe why we believe that and what it means. And that's our, our hope. So we're going to talk this morning about what we believe and what difference it makes. And I, I think it's important uh, to, to note that we all believe something, and it is also important to think about what it is and why. Because we often don't. And so what do we believe as followers of Jesus? What is it that the church, using the Apostles' Creed, uh, and that's the particular one that we're looking at. You could also look at the Nicene Creed, which has overlap, but has a little bit more to it. We believe that as well. But uh, what it is that we believe and then what difference it makes to us. So let me, let me pray for us and we'll dive into John 14. Lord, we do pray that you would work in our hearts in our minds, that we might understand what we believe and that we might understand why it matters. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just want to continue a little bit on this idea of the fact that as we talk about belief in Jesus here in John 14, inviting us into belief, believe in God, believe also in me, that there is a recognition that we do uh, all believe in something. But sometimes in the church over the years, we, we use this language of believer, somebody who believes in God, and unbeliever. And there's actually even some uh, biblical accounting for that. There, there's, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, God chastising his people for unbelief. And that's uh, assumed belief in him. But there is also should be a recognition that the, the reality for us, technically speaking, is we're either believers in what 
God has invited us into, what Jesus Christ has invited us into, or we're believers in something else. And, and that's not uh, an accepted reality in our culture today. There's a great book uh, that, as we think about this idea of belief that I recommend, not a surprise, it's a, a Tim Keller book, um, called Making Sense of God. Making Sense of God is his follow-up to Reason for God. And Reason for God is one that I've talked about before that, that uh, addresses the, the biggest reasons that people don't believe in Christianity. And he dives into those doubts and those questions. And Making Sense of God, he says, okay, well, I actually want to take a step back to some more fundamental beliefs. And uh, even in the preface, he, he refers to the fact that, that there is uh, this reality of a secular faith. Uh, faith of the, the faith of the secular. In his chapter, uh, the second chapter actually is, isn't religion based on faith and secularism on evidence? This is something that, uh, again, again, we would hear again and again in our culture. Like, I just believe in science and it informs the rest of my life. I just, I just look at the evidence and uh, it affects all that I believe and, and do. And Keller, along with... Uh, his references to a number of philosophers, uh, Christians and non-Christians alike, uh, does a really good job, a better job than I could do, of arguing the fact that we're not actually able to jettison belief and just say that we believe in evidence. That this idea that we would, would hope in or believe in or trust in what is called um, exclusionary reason, that the only thing that we use to understand what is true about the world is reason, fails to account for uh, things that we experience every day, love, beauty, the value of justice. Uh, and also, if you want to get into more deeper philosophical ideas, you, you can't prove the reality that we're not all in a matrix. Um, and, you know, this is, fo folks have these conversations on a deeper level about, you know, we're just a brain in a jar that's getting electrodes. And uh, I think uh, very few of us probably actually believe that that's true. And yet we can't prove it with science. But more fundamentally, we experience the world in ways that just applying reason and science uh, fails to give us answers to why we experience those things, why we experience love, why we experience beauty in the world, why we experience the value of justice. All of us have beliefs that undergird the way that we move through life in our lives. And we wanna be honest about that reality. And as followers of Jesus, we want to say, what are the fundamental things that we believe? And the Apostles' Creed is something that we are saying, this is something that is fundamental to who we are, gathered as the people of God. And for those that come and don't yet believe, we, we want folks to be aware, this is why we gather. This is what unites us. This is what is fundamental to who we are. Uh, so it's both informative it is, uh, it is a, yes, a ritual, but it shapes us because we want to recognize that we ourselves need to be shaped. We need to be moved in a particular direction. And these beliefs that we confess each week are founded in the scripture that calls us to trust in the one who created us, to calls, uh, that calls us to believe in the most fundamental truth, that we all worship something that we all believe in something and that what we were created to do is to believe in and worship our creator. And this, the Apostles' Creed, is designed to move us in that direction. And all of us have rituals. All of us have 
uh, these patterns in our lives that shape us. It, it might be the scripture. We might have really good patterns in our lives of, of meditating on the word of God and allowing it to shape us. We, we might be regularly shaped by worship on Sunday mornings. But we're also shaped by the movies that we watch and the books that we read. And more and more, there's a recognition that we're shaped by social media. And there's all kinds of studies that talk about this with kids, right? And we lament all of the impact on kids. But it is absolutely true for adults as well. We are shaped by our time spent in social media, in TV, in the things that we read. We need to recognize that reality. Our, our hope is, as followers of Jesus, that we gather on a Sunday morning, that we gather as community groups, as the people of God, and that we're shaped toward what is true and healthy and right, that we're shaped in this direction, in a way, Jesus is heading in a particular direction, the way, the truth, and the life, that is headed in a way that is what we were created for. And that invitation calls us to life. Jesus is inviting us into that belief, and he does it again and again. Let your hearts not be troubled, verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. And we find the importance of belief for Jesus all through this passage. I mean, in these few verses alone, we see uh, the word belief six times. But in the book of John, we find it over 80 times, this call to or this recognition of what we believe. And John even says at the end that I, I write this book, I write this gospel, the story of Jesus' life, that you may believe in him. We find this is a theme throughout all of Scripture uh, in the Old Testament as well. Again, I mentioned the call out of unbelief, the call of not trusting in God, or the positive call to belief. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in me will not be in haste. Whoever believes in me will be a part of his people, will experience the blessing of being a follower of his in relationship with him. This is what we are invited into. He's inviting us to this idea that he is a God who is at work in this world. That God is at work specifically in Jesus. Believe in God, verse one, believe also in me. And then he goes on to describe who he is. He is the way, the truth, and the life. This is a fairly well-known verse, John 14, six. Uh, we, we know it well if we've been in the church for any length of time. And, and it is fundamental to what we understand about Christianity. That he is headed in a particular direction. He's already noted that. He's, he's going uh, to prepare a place for you. He's talking to his disciples. And he says, I've gone to prepare a place for you, verse 2. He's headed in a particular, particular direction. And he says to get there, to get to that fulfillment, to get to that place that I've created you for, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the hope for this life. I am the thing to believe in. And, and to be clear, it's not always, it's not simple. I, I, don't hear me say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You're good to go, right? It's easy. But there's, there's not any problems. That's not what he's saying. Even this recognition of what both Thomas and Philip experience here. Jesus uh, has told him, uh, he says, I go to prepare a place for you, verse 3. I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And, and Thomas is like, 
uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I mean, hear what he's saying here. You're telling us we know the way. We don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? I mean, there is a lot of confusion here. And Thomas is this one who later deals with belief in chapter 20 when he has to touch. He, has to, he wants to see Jesus and he touches his wounds. This is after the resurrection. And uh, he finally believes. Uh, he is doubting Thomas, right? He struggles with belief. And, and he struggles partly because he doesn't really fully understand. That's a recognition of where we often experience our belief. Uh, maybe uh, we're like the one in Mark chapter 9 that says, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, there's some way in which Thomas is experiencing that. Look, I, I want to go along. I don't understand what's happening. Like we find ourselves there, right? Part of the reason that we use the Apostles' Creed is, is to shape our belief, to shape our thoughts, to move us, in that, to remind us of what is true, to give us that direction of the way, the truth, and the life. It's not always easy to understand, and we often want more. Philip wants more. He says in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Like, give me a sign. He, he, wants a, he wants a burning bush here. He, he wants the glory of God to reveal himself to him, and that'll be enough. Right? What you've done, Jesus, is not enough. I, I need more. We often find ourselves here as well. Right? We, we struggle with belief. That, that's a, a regular pattern. And, and yet there is then, in the midst of that, this call to belief. It's helpful to note that here in verse 1, Believe in God. Believe also in me. If you have your Bible with you and aren't just reading in the worship guide, you, you may note that uh, another way to understand this is uh, as a statement, not as a command. You believe in God. You believe also in me. And the, the grammar here is, is not super clear. And, and I think it actually could be ambiguous on purpose, that there is this maybe this idea of go on believing let us go on believing. You do believe, but continue to believe. This is the journey that we're invited into regularly as followers of Jesus. The journey of confessing the same confession of faith regularly, that it would shape us, that we believe, but we want to go on believing. We need to encourage one another to that belief. And, and, and we'll get to the fact that we do this together. Uh, that, that'll be uh, later in weeks to come, of the fact that this is very much something that we do together. We do confess it every week together because it's not just something that we experience on our own. That we encourage one another to write in true belief, to believe and trust in God. It's not always easy to understand. And we recognize that it also comes in opposition to believing or trusting in other things. And this idea of belief, faith, Trusting these, these are all connected, right? And so when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, there is a clear declaration that he is the way, the truth, and the life in opposition to other things. Because we're tempted to trust in other things for life, in other things for fulfillment, for happiness, for whatever our goal or end that we're seeking might be. He knows, as Paul tells us in Romans 1, that we suppress the truth, what is true about who the creator is and the fact that he is working in this world and invites us into that. And, and we are challenged to believe in this truth. And we're told that it will bring us life. Romans 10 verse 9 
Paul tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is very much an exclusionary call here from Jesus. He is the exclusive way to real life. This is what we're invited to believe. And this is a bold claim in a very pluralistic society that takes certain beliefs for granted. That idea that Stephen Turner included in his creed, that poem that he wrote, is that, you know, that all religions are the same, you know, ex- except for the way that they deal with God and sin and salvation and creation. And Jesus is making a very exclusive claim here to believe in him. There's an invitation. If, if you aren't yet a believer in Jesus and the fact that he is the way, the truth, and the life, the one way that offers forgiveness for our sin, the ways which we have missed the mark, which we haven't lived up to uh, our own standard, much less his, if you don't yet believe those things, there is an invitation here from Jesus to believe in God, to believe also in him. And again, I recognize that's not always uh, an easy invitation. So invite you to, there are any number of folks in this room that would love to have a conversation with you to talk about these truths, to read through, I, I would start with actually this whole book of John, not just 14, but to read about the life of Jesus. You know, there's some, there's some other books outside of the Bible, ones that I've mentioned already, Reason for God, Making Sense of God, both by Keller or uh, Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. There are a lot of good options to address the challenges that we have with belief. But there's very much a call to believe and then to be then to be shaped by it. Why does it matter what we believe? Are these just these theological things, these things that matter up, up in the sky, they don't really affect my life? That's never what we find in Scripture. It affects life both now, and then we see this picture of what is to come, the, the way, this place that he's going to prepare for us. But it affects life now. And he says in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, don't hear either me or Scripture saying if you believe in God, you're not going to have any anxiety or trouble in, in your heart. But there is continually, there is a promise of peace and comfort in the midst of the mourning and the pain and the struggle and the doubts. There are still beautiful promises of peace, peace that surpasses all understanding, comfort from the God of comfort who has power over death itself. There is all kinds of hope that is offered in the midst of the struggle and the pain and the fact that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. There is this effect of believing. And Jesus is just tying those things together. Then there is this picture of the way that it might affect life now. In verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. There's a picture of it affecting life, affecting what we are able to do. And there is some mystery as to exactly what he means here. But we've seen the church and the gospel change hearts and lives over the centuries. We've seen lives changed by the gospel that the church has been a part of proclaiming. The church in all of its mess, with all of its brokenness and the broken people in it and in leadership and all those things, we see the gospel moving forward in really hopeful and beautiful ways. And maybe maybe we're experiencing, we look around the West and we see 
you know, the decline of the church. You can look up all kinds of statistics about that. And, um, and, and yet we see that the church is exploding in the global south and in, in Asia and in places uh, other than here. The church continues to explode and lives continue to be changed and the kingdom is growing. There, there is uh, an invitation to be a part of that work and to pray that God would grow his church here. Pray that God would grow Fountain Square Press and our influence and uh, that he would use us to see lives change, not only ours, but those around here. But pray for other churches. This is why we pray for other churches every week. We, we do desire to see this happen and to be able to be a part of that. But there's this clear picture that our belief, our faith, our trust in him is what affects all of these things. And there is, there is this invitation to allow this belief to, to change the way in which we live. This is a, an old illustration that I continue to find helpful. I've heard it for many years. Charles Blondin uh, lived in the mid-19th century. In the 1850s, he put together this uh, series of stunts. He was a tightrope walker, uh, a funambulist. Sure that I said that incorrectly, <laughs> but I looked it up. Uh, and uh, that's what they called him at the time. He was a tightrope walker is what he was. And he was the one who tightrope walked across Niagara Falls on a hemp rope. So not able to tighten it like a cable would now, right? It was a, a, a hemp cable. And, uh, and the first time that he did it, there were people who gathered for his tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. And, and some of them fainted out of the tension of the moment. And uh, he did it. He walked across and he walked back and then he's like, I think I can do more. And over the series of multiple stunts that he did, he did all kinds of, he did somersaults across it. He stopped in the middle and he, he dropped a line down to the, uh, to the maid of the mist, the boat uh, that came to the bottom of the falls and, and they tied a bottle of wine to it. And he brought it up and drank the wine and then kept going. He's like, hey, you guys think I did that? You think I can do it with a wheelbarrow? And everybody's like, yeah, go for it. You think I could, and he, one of the things that was crazy, he took a stove out there and he cooked an omelet and ate it and then walked back. I, I, I don't know why. Uh, I bet it was impressive to watch, right? And he, he never had safety nets and he never had uh, uh, ropes to, uh, to if he, in case he fell. Like, he was always on the verge of, of death. And that's not how he died. He survived every one of them. But imagine, everybody's like, yeah, you can do that, you can do that. okay. I, can I do it with a wheelbarrow? Yes, you can do it with a wheelbarrow. All right, you think I can do it with a person on my back? Yeah, you can do it with a person on, my back, on your back. Who's going to volunteer? Right? Um, actually, his manager volunteered. And he did it with his manager on his back. Um, but his manager was probably the only one who had that kind of trust, that kind of faith to actually do that, right? That, that's, the, that's this picture of, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe that. That's true. It's this intellectual ascent. Yeah, God's at work in this world. But do we actually trust him in a way that we allow it to affect our lives? Do we allow it to affect the way that we um, engage this world? We think about salvation to hold to an exclusive claim of Jesus. Do we believe it enough to hold that reality? Do we believe it enough to allow it to shape the way that we spend our money? Or where we live? Or what job we have? or what or how we, what relationships we enter into or how we enter into those relationships, do, do we allow it? Because J Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life has 
things to say about all of that. And he invites us into that to recognize that that is life because he's, he's inviting us in to believe in him that not only would it shape us now, but that it shapes our end, that is our, where we're headed. The goal of both this life and that which is to come, this amazing promise that I go to prepare a place for you and then I will come and take you to myself. There's this place to come. He's going to return. There's a promise here of the second coming of Jesus when he's going to come and he's going to make all things right. He's going to prepare a place for his followers, for those that he has invited to himself. This, this work that happens between the Father, the Creator, and the Son. We'll talk more about the Trinity as we go through the Creed, but here we have God himself in this world inviting us to be in relationship with him so that we might experience the promise of eternal life when all things are made right. And he doesn't explain all of that here, but he is saying there is this place that is true and ultimate life. He's very explicit about it in other places, already in John and in the future, about that everlasting life, that eternal life, that place where all things are made right. That's what he's inviting us into. It's quite a promise. It's quite a thing to believe. And I get it. Like a little bit crazy for some people to think that, that that's, that's what we believe. And, and we're getting there. It's not only here, it's in the rest of the creed and other parts of scripture. And it's a promise that we can embrace and rejoice and that will then affect life now and give us hope in the midst of the struggles that we have here and now. And our hope is that in, not only in the confession that we confess every week, that we're thoughtful about that, that it shapes us, but the songs that we sing, we're, we're thoughtful. Matt's thoughtful about the songs that he picks and the words that are there. There's truth that shapes us. All that we do, confession of sin and call to worship, all of it is shaping what we believe and then what we're called to do in light of that. And there is great hope in the midst of that. And I pray that I am shaped and that you are shaped, that we as a congregation, as families are shaped by this truth each and every week, that we might experience the way, the truth, and the life, the relationship that we have with him that affects all of life. Let's pray.